Well, good morning, Heart of the City Church. It's, I guess we're in the afternoon as of four minutes ago. So good afternoon, Heart of the City Church. How y'all feeling? How about worship, huh? Some of you, okay, cool, cool. I was experiencing the presence of God. It was wonderful. Um, well, as Seth said, uh, my name is Henry, and I do serve here uh, with, uh, with the youth here at Heart Youth, and I serve over high school boys, um, which, yeah, yeah exactly. So let me tell you something. The reason you just heard a thank you from the crowd um, is because if you're a parent of a high school boy, you are well aware that your children are kind of psychotic sometimes. Um, and uh, so it takes somebody who's just a little bit crazy to come and serve those high school boys. If you've never met a high school boy, uh, just talk to one for like maybe even five minutes and uh, you'll figure out real quick uh, that they are, they are just a different kind of crazy. Um, but I keep coming back, which means that I must love it. So, um, but yes, I do serve here over the high school boys um, at Heart of the City. And uh, you know, one thing that you do need to know about me is I'm a very passionate human being. Um, I speak loudly, and it is not because I'm angry, it's because I'm very passionate. The only thing that I'm angry at is the little gremlin Satan that tries to hurt my friends. And so um, I am just here to preach the word of God, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about me, a lot about God, and hopefully a little bit about you. So when I was born, I was naked. Um, like I'm sure a lot of you here in this room, um, maybe some of you weren't, I don't know. Uh, maybe you came out with a suit and a tie and a monocle. That would be a cartoon anyway. Um, <laughs> but I was born, um, I was born into this world, into a family of that, that was bound by addiction and being born into that kind of life has a tendency to affect the way that you live your life. Now, obviously, I no longer live that lifestyle, so that's part of the testimony, and we will get to that. And um, today, I hope to share with you how I came out of the life that I lived into the life that I have now, how I went from being an old, the, the, my old man into the new, cre the new creation that Christ has created. And one of those things is that the, the scripture that I'm really gonna focus on today is found in 1 Thessalonians 5. And it is my, my life scripture. It's tattooed on my shoulder right here. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. This scripture... I believe has three very foundational things that can help us learn how to walk away from our old life and become the new you. So will you pray with me today? Father, thank you. God, thank you for the honor to preach your word, to share your word. God, I just pray that as, as we dive into relationship with you today, God, that, that you would begin to work on our hearts. God, I pray that our hearts would be open to receive you, that our ears would be open to hear you, and that our eyes would be open to see you. Lord, we just pray that, God, that you would work through me, that you would speak your word the way that you want it to be spoken. 
in Jesus name. And everybody said, Amen. amen. So like I said, I was, I was born into a home that, that was a home that was bound by addiction. And one thing that you need to know about my story is it does kind of start with my parents and my father from the little that I know about his background. Um, I know that he grew up in a very manipulative household that was also bound by addiction and there was alcoholism some abuse and some things like that, that he grew up with. And so as he grew up, he came up in that same lifestyle. And I, I know now that both my mother and my father, as I, as they were raising me, they, the, the thing about addiction is that it limits your capacity for certain things. And I know that they loved me more than anything else on the planet, but they did not have the fullness and the capacity to show it in the way that they would want to. And so as I grew up, uh, my mom also, she actually, she, she was actually raised Catholic. My grandmother used to be a nun. Um, I say used to be, cause obviously, you know, my mom was born. So, um, kind of, you know, anyway, if you know, you know, anyway, so I'm not going to explain, Dawn. <laughs> uh, she was raised Catholic, and I remember one of the stories that she tells me about growing up in, uh, in the Catholic church of going to Sunday school. And she, my mom is a very inquisitive person. She still is to this day. Um, and she would ask lots of questions to the Sunday school teachers, questions that they found hard to answer. And so their answer was, sinful people ask questions. And if you continue to ask questions, you're going to hell. Um, so a little bit of a bad taste for religion um, in that aspect. And so growing up, my mother and my father, like a tornado and a hurricane, met and created this wonderful and disastrous thing. <laughs> and uh, then, they, then they had my, my sister and they had me. And growing up in that life, uh, I always kind of thought that the life that I lived in that household was normal. By that, I mean that there was a lot of yelling. There was a lot of screaming. Sometimes there were physical altercations and, and there was addiction. There was alcohol. There was drugs. And there was a lot of these things, which personally, I was actually shielded from a lot of it because my older sister would, would take me and she would hide me in, in my room with her. And throughout that, that time of being a child, I remember thinking it was normal. This is what everybody's life is like. Everybody has parents that yell at each other, that fight each other. Everybody seems to have the police at their house every single week. Um, this is something that's normal. Actually, the police were at my house so much that I began to know some of them by name. And when they would come and they would talk to us, I would actually run up to them because we were friends, me and the police. And, and I would ask them for stickers of little like police badges. And then they would put it on my chest and I'd be like, woo. And then my dad would tell me to take it off because that was, I can't tell you what he would call them because it's not appropriate for church. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, I remember around the age of like six, 
I started to like go to other people's houses and, and I would spend the night at friends' houses and we'd have tons of fun and there'd be birthdays and all of these different things. And I remember going to these people's houses and being like, why aren't your parents fighting? This is a little weird. This isn't normal. And the more people that I began to go and hang out with, the more friends that I began to have, I began to realize that actually the life that I lived was the abnormal one. And as a six-year-old, that's very hard to process emotionally. My life is not normal. So what do I do about it? And that came out in the aspect of storytelling. At a very young age, I was a phenomenal storyteller. Now, were any of my stories true? Almost none of them. Um, because I, would, I, I wanted to have people believe that I had this extravagant and amazing life to try and cover up for the fact that all the, all the while at home, our life was in shambles. And so I would tell people things like, my dad is a heavyweight boxer, or we have tons of puppies at home, or I live on the other side of a rainbow. And I would, I would be during show and tell, and I would tell all these little kids all of these crazy stories, and they would be like, wow, so captivated at all this amazing stuff. And the teachers began to realize, I actually don't know anything about this kid that's true. And like a good teacher... They began to wonder, why doesn't he tell true stories? And so they brought my mom into a parent-teacher conference. And uh, my mom was like, why are you mad that he tells good stories? Like, <laughs> he can captivate the kid's attention and you can't. So, no, I'm just, <laughs> I'm sorry. That, teachers are amazing. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. My mother is a, is a loving and fiery woman and uh, she loves her kids. Which brings me to the part of that. Before I go into the next part, I want to make sure I tell you the testimony actually before. Uh, my mother is 17 years sober. And my father along the same vein. I have a wonderful relationship with my mother. And I have a wonderful relationship with my father. We talk about things all the time. Me and my mom discuss like, theology in a way that you guys would be like, wow, that's kind of off the wall. Um, it's, it's phenomenal. Um, but at that time in my life, it wasn't that way. I was actually afraid to tell my mom and dad when I would do something wrong because I was afraid of the fighting. And I, would afraid, I was afraid that I would be a part of that. And around eight years old, we lived in a trailer park in a place called Kid Island Bay, um, it is now million-dollar homes, but when I lived there, it was a trailer park. Um, and we, there was this, like, little community of trailer park people, um, and <laughs> I, was, I was one of them, so I can say it, okay? <laughs> um, there was this little community of trailer park people, and uh, they, we were all friends, like, we had all these, like, you know, everybody would we would run around and throw rocks at birds and all kinds of crazy stuff and, and do all kinds of, you know, crazy things. But there was a friend of mine who I would spend a lot of time with and at eight years old, he was probably about maybe five years older than I was. And at eight years old, um, he sexually abused me. 
I know now that the horrors that he must have gone through were terrible. Because that's not something that somebody his age just does. And I know now that he was also broken. And I actually pray, I I said this at the 909 too, I actually pray that, that one day I find him that one day somehow we actually come into contact and, and I, can, I can pray with him and tell him that I forgive him. I can't imagine that kind of weight. But it wasn't something that, that happened just once. It happened over a period of time. I remember knowing as an, as an eight-year-old, this is wrong. This is 100% wrong. But I, 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 don't, I didn't know why it was wrong. Why is this wrong? And I remember being afraid to tell my parents because I, I felt like I had done something wrong and that because I did something wrong, I couldn't tell them because I would be in trouble. And so dealing with this, I had to, I, I had to internalize this. This thing at eight years old, I had to internalize it and keep it inside and not show anybody, which eventually led to this personality trait called the chameleon. I couldn't let anybody see the grossness that was inside of me. And so I had to put on masks. I then began to be the person that was friends with everyone because I didn't know what love was like. See, I, I, I thought that maybe, you know, intimacy was love, but that was ruined for me. And so I needed to find love somewhere. So I began, to, I began to be friends with everybody, every people group all over the place. I was friends with, with anybody you could think of. And I would put on a mask for every different group. And I would, I would tell different jokes in this group than I would tell in this group. And I would laugh at different jokes in this group than I do in this group. And I would say different things in this group than I do in this group. And I would live multiple different lives all of the time just so that I could feel accepted by people. And eventually, at around 10 years old, that got me into a group of people where I had my first drink of alcohol. And at that age, it was, obviously it tasted horrible, but the feeling that came after was something that I'd never felt before. See, I had been walking with this fear that people would begin to know the real me my entire life. That people would would, would see the grossness that's inside of me and that they would run away. But for some reason, when I took that drink of alcohol, everything went numb. And I didn't feel anything. I actually had probably more confidence than I'd ever had in my entire life. And I remember thinking in my head, oh, this is the solution. Now from there, I didn't, I didn't really actively seek after it very often until I turned the age of 12. At age 12, I began to seek out parties and, and drinking and, and all of these different things. And, and as I sought those things out, I, it eventually evolved into other things. I began to experiment with drugs and prescription drugs and, and hard drugs and, and more and more alcohol and going into blackout binges and all of these things all the way through my preteen years into my teen years. 
And at the age of 17, a very, very close friend of mine, I call him my brother. I actually met him when I was 12 at the same time that all of this really started to take, take seed. Um, he actually was coming to fight me because I was dating a girl that he liked. And then we ended up being best friends. So, I mean, it's just weird how that works, right? Like women are like, you know, hey, we bonded over coffee. And men are like, I came to punch you in the face and now we're cool. Like, what's up, dude? Yeah, so it's just, <laughs> it's just weird how that works. Uh, but he was, caming, he was coming to fight me and, uh, because I was dating a girl that he liked. And then it turns out that, you know, he, he was like what I like to call, he, I, I called him Stonewall Jackson back in the day because this kid was like cold. You could, not, you could not make this kid crack a smile to save your life ever. And me being the person who was the funny guy that liked to make people laugh, saw him as a challenge. And so I, I, I made him laugh. I, so I won, but uh, so I made him laugh and we became best friends. From that day forward, he stuck by my side. His name is Jordan. He stuck by my side throughout everything. Now, the crazy thing about Jordan was not a drop of alcohol has ever touched his lips. He's never done any drugs. He's never done anything like that ever in his entire life to this day. But he would go with me to parties. He would go with me to parties and he would sit in the corner in a black hoodie and put the hood on and look like a weirdo. <laughs> And people, but people would come up to them and be like, dude, what's up with this weird guy? And I would get so angry at them. I'd be like, that's my friend, dude. Don't talk about my friend like that. Um, but he, he would just watch and he'd make sure that I didn't die <laughs> because I did a lot of really dumb stuff. But I remember at the age of 17, I woke up one morning at a party and Jordan didn't go with me. I woke up at a party in a house and I had no idea where I was. I didn't know what the house was. I didn't know the people that were sprawled out across the floor. I had no idea who those people were. And I reach in my, my pants pocket and I find that I had my keys in my pocket. And, and I thought to myself, my God, did I drive here? And I, I began to have this, this crisis in my mind of where am I? What am I doing? Where am I, where am I going? What is this? I eventually find myself in a bathroom washing my face, trying to gain my bearings. And I know now that it was a moment of divine clarity. God was speaking to me before I knew him. He began to speak things to me. And I remember hearing a voice in my head say, you can't keep living this way because if you do, you will die. I remember looking up in the mirror and looking at myself in the mirror and repeating it out loud. I can't keep living this way because if I do, I'll die. And so on that day, I made, I made a conscious choice. I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with the drugs. I'm done with the alcohol. I'm done with all of the, I'm done with cussing. I'm done with all the things, all of it. I'm done. And I would love to tell you that that's where the story takes a turn. And I, unfortunately, that is not my story because I gave up something and did not replace it with something else. For about a month after that time, I was the most depressed I could remember in my life. Self-harm, suicidal thoughts, all of these things came over me during that time frame. And it was because my identity was founded in the party guy that I had put forth 
for everyone to see. And all of my friends would come to me and be like, yo, man, like the way that we bonded was we partied. Yo, man, you coming to a party? And all of my friends all of a sudden dispersed. No one talked to me because I'm like, no, man, I don't do that anymore. And then I would eventually break down just to feel close to some people and I would end up at a party. And I remember one day, Jordan came up to me and he didn't look like Stonewall Jackson. He looked like brand new. And he goes, hey man, what's up? I'm like, wow, you look different. He's smiling, that's why he looked different. He didn't do that a lot. Um, (laughs) And he goes, hey man, my mom started going to this church. Do you wanna come check it out? Now I had been to church before, I'd been in and out of church and even through my teen years, I had gone to youth group but I usually went because I was dating a girl and I was going for something other than youth group. Um, So I was like, sure man, whatever, I've been to church before, I'll come with you. I show up to church at 17 in April of 2013. Show up to church. And the moment that I walk in the building with my giant bright red basketball shorts and giant globe sneakers and weird haircut and giant white t-shirt, these people came up to me and they were like happy to see me. And I remember walking into the building feeling like I could kick my feet up on a chair and grab a slice of pizza from the fridge, like it was home. And these people began to ask me my name and, and wanted to give me hugs and, and were like, oh, hey, you know, we're so glad you're here. Blah, blah, blah. Who are you? Blah, blah. Oh, Jordan brought you? Sweet. Let's go. Blah. And like, I, re- I remember all these people and I'm like, dude, who are you people? You don't even know who I am. Are you crazy? Yes, they are crazy. <laughs> Thank you. We are a little bit, all right? But they... They loved me in a way that I, had, that I hadn't experienced in a long time. And so we get up to the upper room, which it was, it was upstairs. We get up to the upper room, the youth room, and Jordan was a front rower, I guess. And I'm like, I didn't see that coming, but, um, and I'm with Jordan, so I was also a front rower. Um, First time at youth group. So I'm sitting in the front row of this youth group and they start to worship. It was a room of maybe 30 or 40 kids. And as they started to worship, everyone stood up and they lifted their hands and they started to sing the words that were on the screen in front of them. I remember sitting there, literally, and being like, this is weird, but everyone's doing it. So maybe there's something to it. I bowed my head and for like one of the first times in my life, I said, Lord, if you're real, then show me. I stood up out of my chair and I raised my hands in worship. And as soon as my hands got to the very top of where they could go, I could only ever describe it like lightning shot through my body. And I was sat right back down in my chair. And I began to weep as the presence of God came over me. And I wanted to point out something. God came after I stood up. Some of you have been waiting for God to come to you. And I'll tell you something right now. That happens. More often than not, God is waiting for you to stand up and to put your hands up. 
He is waiting for you to act upon faith, knowing that he will come and he will meet you. It was right then and there, the youth pastor at the time had come up to me, said, hey man, what's going on? I don't know. What are you feeling? I feel like lightning shot through my body. That's the Holy Spirit. Okay. (laughs) Do you want more of it? Yes. He began to pray for me. And as he prayed for me, I remember feeling something swelling up inside of my chest. And he began to tell me about being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and your spirit language and all of this stuff. And in the very same night in April of 2013, I was also baptized in the Holy Spirit and God came upon me. And it was in that moment that I decided this is what I've been looking for. It wasn't alcohol. It wasn't relationships. It wasn't all this stuff. This is what I've been looking for. This is the thing. And so I said, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. This is it. Now, again, I wish I could tell you that it was cold turkey, but I fell. I went back. I went back to pornography. I went back to alcohol. I went back to to all kinds of things. But this time, every time I went back, I came back and said, hey man, to my youth pastor, I messed up. Okay, what's going on? And we would pray and he would pray for me. Some of us, we get caught in sin and we're so worried that people are like, dude, you've been here five times that we don't come back. I want to encourage you today that the way that you change your life is you come back. It is by confession. It is by confession that you live out the sanctification that God has designed for your life. And so from, that, from, from there forward, it was about 18 that I got, that, I got the verse of 1 Thessalonians and I began to live my life. I, I began to try to live my life as that verse went. My, I also met during this time, during youth group, uh, at about 18, my, my beautiful and wonderful wife. She showed, up to, uh, she showed up to youth group and I was like, hey, all right, how you doing? Okay. Um, turns out she was actually one of my youth leader's little sisters and I was like, is that okay? Like, am I, is that off limits? I don't really know, but I'm gonna go talk to her. Um, she is my wife now, so praise God. Um, it was the first time in my life that I wanted a relationship and I wanted to show somebody who I really was. I wanted to tell somebody, Hey, this is my baggage. This is, this is what I've been through. And this is, this is where I'm at. And me and her fell in love over a summer. And then we both decided, Hey, let's go to Bible college And if you've been to Bible college, more often than not, you can't date your first year of Bible college. So we didn't date our first year of Bible college. Um, We were super obedient and we never talked and we never texted each other. We never met up outside of the church. Just holy, wonderful. All right. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Ah, But we fell in love. And as we went through Bible college, we began to realize that there was a calling on our life, that God had destined us for something. 
And eventually we became the youth pastors of the church that we went to college at. And eventually we became the associate pastors of the church that, that, we, were, that we went to college at. And it was during this time that we began to pray and wonder, where, what does God have for us? What does God have next? There unfortunately was some very, there, there was a lot of brokenness in the, in the church that we were at. And unfortunately there wasn't accountability to remedy the, broken, the brokenness. And that came out in manipulation and hurt people hurting other people. And so we began to pray and wonder if this is where God still had us. Now, my wife, uh, in the wonderful woman of God that she is, she got her answer about a year before I did. Um, now, eventually we did both come to the same answer. So she got the correct answer a year before I did. So um, she, she's a wonderful woman of God. And, and here's the lesson to all you young men. Uh, listen to your wife. <laughs> And now we are here, here at the heart, and we, and we love everything about it. But I hope to share to you to, with you today how I got from A to B. How did I go from the boy that was walking in sin and bound by addiction to a man who just wants to see God glorified and see people set free? And it starts with, the first thing that it starts with is you need to recognize something. Your life is not your own. Your life does not belong to you. There was life breathed into you and God knit you together and he gave you this life. And so it is your honor to give it back to him. John 10, 10 says the thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. You were called to live an abundant life. What that means is his life that is full to the point of overflowing. No want, no need. You were called to live this kind of life. But I'm here to tell you today, you cannot do that unless you surrender your life to Jesus. You cannot fill your own cup. It is the Lord and the Lord alone that can fill your cup. And there is nothing else that can do it. I promise. Take it from me. I tried drugs. I tried alcohol. I tried spirituality. I tried other relationships. I tried, I tried sex and all the bad things. All of it. I tried all of it. And the only thing that satisfied the God-sized hole that was inside of my heart was Jesus Christ because he was designed for it. You were created to receive your identity and your life from an outside source. But that source is nothing that you can find in the world. That source can only be found in Jesus and Jesus alone. So in order to start the journey of the new you, you must first surrender your life. Which brings us to Thessalonians. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, 
for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for your life. The thing I love about this scripture and all of scripture really is that it speaks in what I like to call words of permanence. It doesn't say rejoice sometimes. It doesn't say rejoice when you would like to. It says rejoice always, always. Always is a word of permanence. You realize that always means all the time? I know it seems crazy. Always means all the time. Now I'm not here to try and, 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 and condemn you or anything, but this, there is a standard that God has set for us. And it is our life to spend living toward that standard. So rejoice always. The word rejoice means to be glad in greeting or farewell or to hail, rejoice. The word hail is an interesting word. Now we might think all hail King Jesus. What hailing is, is you are calling out to attract the attention of another person. So when we hail God, we are calling out to attract his attention. When we talk about rejoicing, rejoicing comes from a place of joy. And your rejoicing attracts the attention of God and then points it towards you. See, joy... Joy is something that's very interesting. The Bible says in Romans 5, 3 through 4, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It says in James 1, 2 through 3, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. When it talks about joy and rejoicing in the Bible, it's interesting to me that it talks about it in a manner of hardship. When you go through hardship is the time that joy is, at its, is, is designed to come into your heart and position you to God. See, joy is not circumstantial. Happiness is, and the reason why I think we call it happiness is because something is happening to you that makes you feel good. See, joy is not circumstantial. What joy is, is you understand that God is much bigger than you are, and you understand that the father that you serve is a good father, and so this momentary hardship is something that you can use to glorify him going forward. See, you understand that because God is good, that everything that comes from him is good, which means that your life is good. Joy is not circumstantial. So we rejoice in hardship because it calls the attention of God. Pray without ceasing. Man, I love this one. I feel that prayer has not yet reached a level in our lives where we truly understand its significance. In Luke 11, verse one, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Jesus walked on water. He healed the blind, raised people from the dead. 
He prophesied and he, and he preached and he saw people saved at the thousands. He multiplied food. What was the thing that his disciples asked to teach? Teach us how to pray. Why? Because what did the disciples see Jesus do? Yes, they saw the miracles, but before the miracle, what was he doing? He was praying. He would go and he would be alone with the Lord. He would go and he'd be alone with his father. He would pray every single moment of every single day. Why? Because when you pray, God hears you. Your prayer is heard by God and he responds to that prayer. It is through prayer that we see breakthrough. It is through prayer that we see healing. It is through prayer that we see relationships brought to back together. It's through prayer that we see forgiveness. It's through prayer. It's through prayer. We have come to a place where I think prayer comes out only when we're hurting. Prayer needs to be the driving force and the driving factor of your life. Pray when the season is good. Pray when the season is hard. Pray in the stagnant season where you don't know where anything is going to go, but at least pray because God has something for you and it is, it is brought to you through prayer. In everything, give thanks. I think this one we have a really hard time with. In America, we like to complain. Why? because everything's given to us. It's microwaved, it's Amazon, it's right now. I didn't get this. I didn't, I didn't get my Amazon package in one day. I'm gonna complain about that. Man, traffic is real slow. I'm gonna complain about that. Bill Johnson says something. If, if God inhabits the praises of his people, then who inhabits our complaints? Your thanksgiving offered up to God does something. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There was a study done in 2004. You didn't think you were coming to science class today. Um, there was a study done in 2004 that studied the brain and it studied the limbic system. Now, stress and anxiety are produced in the limbic system through a chemical called cortisol. Also produced in the limbic system is the place where, the place that is active when we are in gratitude and thankfulness. Funny enough, what they found was that gratitude and thankfulness and stress and anxiety could not exist at the same time. That one would supersede the other based on the conscious decision of the person that they were studying. And so it's funny to me that we finally caught up to the Bible that was written 2000 years ago Paul understood something. If you want to conquer your anxiety and your stress, then give thanks to the Lord. What does it do? See, I like to think this. 
Moses went up on the mountain and he saw God and he saw the face of God. And when he came back down from the mountain, he was thankful. And in being thankful, it reminded him of what God was doing, the promises that God had. So much so that he carved it into his staff. He remembered and reminded himself the promises. Why? Because when you're up on the mountain, everything seems amazing. But when you get sent down from the mountain into the valley to extend your hand and see what God can do, if we forget, we begin to be bitter towards God. You need to be thankful. Remember that in the valley, God is still good. And so we say, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you are good. Thank you, God, that this season is temporary. Thank you, God, that you have come and you have made me a son of you. Thank you, God. See, our problem is that we cultivate thankfulness in our, in our heart over the blessing. But we almost always have something on the other side that we're not thankful for. I'm not sitting here telling you that you should be thankful that bad things happen to you. What I'm telling you is that when those things happen, we need to bury it in thankfulness. I would argue that the thing that is still gripping you that you can't let go of, the reason it's still there is because you haven't yet buried it in thankfulness. Never miss an opportunity to be thankful.